Father, thank you for tonight. Pray that you'll uh, just teach us from your word and that uh, what's in the book of Hebrews here tonight will profit each one of us in living our life for you and please you in all that we do. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. So the title it says is How to Suffer Like Jesus, but I uh, halfway through there's a point in there that talks about suffering successfully, so I thought that would be a better title, uh, How to Be a Successful Sufferer. And uh, so that's what this is about. When people fall away, drift away from Jesus, there's usually one of three reasons why they do that. One of them is, is they get so involved and tangled in the world uh, that they just drift away because of all the uh, stuff, the motorhomes, the vacations, the beaches, the cruises, the houses, the lawnmowers. Pretty soon they've used all their time up on things in the world and they don't have time for God or seeking Him, reading, praying, going to church. All that just gradually gets pushed out of their life by the worldliness that they have. And so that's probably a key one for when people drift away. And another one is uh, a sin. Uh, individuals get involved in some uh, habitual kind of sin, and it's easier to drift away from God than it is to change. If they get too close to God, then they start feeling convicted and guilty. And so they, uh, they either have to move away from God or stop sinning. And uh, often people will choose to drift from God and hang on to the sin in their life. And then the third reason is because of a trial. A significant trial comes into their life and they get upset at God, bitter at God, and uh, they drift away from him. And we've talked about it before. The reason some people come to Christ is they believe that God's going to fix their life and make it wonderful with no problems. And so when they have a trial, then all of a sudden uh, their faith in God begins to wane and they drift away from him. And so it's almost always one of those three reasons. Uh, that people fall away. And so in the book of Hebrews, the pastor of this church that uh, who preached this sermon and then wrote the letter is having trouble with people li- leaving their faith in Christ. And it's mostly because of persecution. And so much of the book of Hebrews basically is talking about uh, how to suffer successfully, or what, another way we might put it is how to suffer without falling away from God and turning it into a positive thing in, in the sense of our walk and our relationship with him. So that's what this is about tonight. Um, number one in your notes, God's original goal was to create a partner for Jesus worthy of him. A partner, uh, a wife, as it were, that is worthy of him. And so that's the church, and that uh, whole purpose began before the foundation of the world. Uh, the, the strategy, the, the goal, everything that God did revolves around this single uh, purpose through the entire Bible was to create a partner, a helper for Jesus that was worthy of him. Uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image, In the image of God, he created him male and female. So I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Adam and Eve were created as adults, but even though they were created as adults, they still began uh, the first day they had life. They had no character. Uh, They were like a baby that's born. And character is not created. It's developed. Adam and Eve were created with a capacity to grow, an infinite capacity, 
to grow in character, but they had none. And, uh, but they were created in God's image. And th- then character had to be developed in their life. Romans 5.14, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even although even of those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. One of the uh, topics we're going to deal with in the book of Hebrews here, probably in about a month or so, is the topic of typology. And that's where you use uh, one thing to illustrate another thing. Uh, the first thing is something that is seen, experienced, to illustrate a spiritual truth. So it's called typology, often uh, the temple is uh, got lots of illustrations built into it that illustrates things that are heavenly in nature. And so it says here that Adam is a type of Jesus, that the life of Adam illustrated in many ways Jesus Christ. Uh, 1 Corinthians fifteen forty five. so also it is written, the first, Adam, first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam, Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. And so you have the first Adam is a type of Jesus, and so Genesis 2.18, this is this, the uh, purpose statement of everything that God has done from the beginning of creation until uh, the end of what we know is this life before Christ comes. And the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Now that was stated about Adam. But Adam was a type of Christ, and so it was a prophetic statement by the Father in regards to what he was doing Everything revolved around this single purpose, creating a helper suitable for Jesus. Revelation 19.7, that's the beginning, Genesis 2, and here's the end of the story. Revelation 19.7, let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready, and that's us, the church. So the way that's worded, it's like, hallelujah, it's finally here. Everything has happened over all these years, revolved around that single purpose, and now it's here, uh, the day that Jesus and his bride are wed at the end of time, and uh, that's in eternity, in the kingdom, in the millennial kingdom, when the beginning when this happens. So Adam, God says to him, not good for you to be alone, I'll create a helper suitable for him. And if you uh, look at the comparisons between uh, Adam's side, uh, Eve came from that, and in Christ on the cross, it was his side that was pierced. And uh, you can go through the typology of Adam and Jesus, and you can find little dozens of illustrations in the life of Christ from the life of Adam. But that was God's purpose. Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. That's us, the church, holy and blameless without spot or wrinkle, uh, worthy of him. And so there's none, uh, not even the best person who's ever lived is worthy as a companion of Jesus. But if you were to take a picture of a a really beautiful woman, a big picture, and tear it up in little bitty pieces, uh, each of those little bitty pieces would be us and the church fit together as the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, then is worthy of him as each part uh, grows in character and becomes like him. Number two, any created being is less than God. 
And the gap between Adam and Jesus was way too great for meaningful fellowship between us and Jesus. So the, you know, the question we can't answer, but it's fun to think about, is when God created Adam, how far was Adam from Jesus in character? As far as my Jack Russell terrier from me? Uh, Jack Russells don't have that much character. Uh, and so fellowshipping with him was eh, kind of borderline. And even my children, when they were born, my grandchildren, the distance between them and me uh, is a fairly large gap. I love them. I like to coochie-coo them, and then I give them to their mother. I don't take them fishing. I don't take them hunting. I don't do much with them. But when they get to a point, then fellowship can, can begin to happen. So the goal is to make us like Jesus in character so that he can enjoy us and, and we him. Hebrews 2, 6, but one has testified somewhere saying, what is man? That's us, that you remember him, or the son of man, that you are concerned about him. In other words, we're not much. Why in the world does God pay attention to us? You have made him for a little while, a little while lower than the angels. Now, that wasn't by design. That's just the way it is. When we're created, when we're born, our character level is not very high. In fact, it's lower than that of the angels for a little while. You've crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. Speaking of Jesus in Luke 40, the child continued to grow, become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Luke 2.52, and Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and favor with God and men. So Jesus, as a man, when he emptied himself of all that he was as God, was born as a baby, just like I was, just like you are, with no character. His character was developed as he grew in age. Number three, God created us with a capacity for infinite character growth. We're created in his image, and so we have the capacity to grow and to become like him in character. Doesn't mean that we will, but we have the potential. And so one of the key aspects of character development is that we have free will. We choose, and it's our choosing uh, to love, to follow, to obey that develops character, but we also have the choice not to love, not to obey, not to follow. Hebrews 6, 1, Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity. To maturity, that would be the character of Christ. Number four, God created a world with the perfect environment for potentially causing maximum character growth. So we have a greenhouse at our house, and the, the greenhouse is designed to create a, an environment that's conducive to growth. Uh, you can control the temperature, the water, and depending on what uh, you're growing in the greenhouse depends on a lot of the environmental controls that you would. The world is a greenhouse for character growth. Everything God did in the world, he created so that we would grow in character. Even the devil was created by God uh, to do what he's doing because one of the uh, requirements for character development is opposition, uh, fighting, resisting, struggling. And it's the opposition that he is the opponent that he is that 
we fight and war against that causes us to get strong and to grow in character. Romans 8.28, we know that God causes all things to work together for good. I don't know how many times I've heard people say that, uh, uh, referring to good as pleasant, uh, nice, comfortable. And so they'll say things when they're in the midst of a trial, I know it's going to turn out for good. And the way they mean good is pretty soon my problems will go away. That's not what's being talked about here. The word good means character growth. God causes all things to work together for good. That is our growth in character to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed, conformed to the image of his son. And so all things work together for good. He conformed us. He predestined us to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. So we become like Jesus in character because when we become like Jesus in character, he will enjoy us and we will enjoy him. God causes all things to work together for good, that is, potentially for our character growth. But we have to cooperate with that process, otherwise it doesn't work. Number five, the theological word for the study of the system that God has designed to move us to Christ-like character growth is cosmology. The system, that is, everything that happens to us in life that's designed to create character in us uh, is cosmology. Now, that was uh, a word that uh, was invented, as it were, uh, shortly after the... uh, Reformation, and then uh, it got stolen. If you look up the word in Wikipedia, here's, it sa- well, here's what it says. Cosmology, from the Greek word cosmos, which is world, and the uh, Greek word logos, which is study or the word, is the study of the origin, evolution, and eventual fate of the universe. Now, that's exactly what it is, the eventual fate of the universe. The eventual fate is Jesus ruling and reigning in the kingdom. We are his bride. We rule and reign with him. Uh, The origin, the evolution, we'd use a different word than evolution, uh, but the process of growing and then the eventual fate of the universe. And so uh, (laughs) we need to steal it back and to make it a little bit more uh, biblical than that definition is. Number six, the major ingredient that God uses to create in us the character of Jesus is suffering. It's sort of like, wow, I'd really like to grow and become like Jesus, but I wish there was a, a better system, a better way. Uh, the, the thought of having to suffer to become like thing in character is not that uh, exciting about, but that's just the way it is. Suffering produces character, and God knows that, and so he uh, controls our life, causes all things to work together for good so that we will grow. Hebrews 5, 8, although he was a son, speaking of Jesus, he learned obedience. He learned obedience. Ever think about the fact that Jesus had to learn obedience? He learned obedience from the things which he suffered and having been made perfect. So he wasn't perfect. It's talking about character. It's not talking about sin. Having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. So Jesus learned obedience from what he suffered and he grew in character from what he suffered. 
So the question is, if Jesus had to suffer to grow in character, uh, how's Jim going to make it without suffering? Uh, you have to be better than Jesus to make it without suffering. Hebrews 2.10, For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and to whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory, to perfect, to perfect, remember the word perfect, to become perfect means character, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. So Jesus grew in character. He became perfect, mature, grown up, and it was the character, uh, excuse me, the suffering that brought that about. Hebrews 11:36 and others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with a sword, they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in the deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. So the writer is basically saying, this is the way it's been. And James 1, 2 through 4, probably the best verse in the Bible uh, to memorize and to, so that we get this particular point straight and our responsibility. In other words, suffering doesn't work unless we cooperate with the process. James 1 says, Consider it all joy, all joy, all, all of it joy when you encounter various trials. Why? Why would you consider it joy? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's, you're like Jesus in character. So God wants us to be like him so that when we get there, we will enjoy him and he will enjoy us. And so he created a world that's perfect in its environment for character growth, and he brings trials into our lives so that we grow in character. But if we don't cooperate with the process, if we don't choose correctly by rejoicing, then it doesn't work. Romans 8, 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us Philippians 1.29, this is sort of a gift it's like God's giving us. It has been granted, granted, here's a great gift to you, for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Hallelujah. Are you excited? Romans 2.9, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich in the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested. The word tested means refined. And you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful until, until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Number seven, God gave us free will. We choose to obey, to follow, or not. So without the free will, character can't be developed. And so we get to choose how we respond, what we do, uh, to what degree we obey. Deuteronomy 30, 19, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you, this is God speaking, I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse, so choose, so choose, you choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants, by loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and by holding fast to him. Number eight, if we respond to the trials that God brings into our life in a wrong way, they produce no character growth will actually produce the opposite. If we respond to trials that God brings into our life in a wrong way, a wrong way would be uh, anger, bitterness, frustration, grouchy, grumbling, complaining, whining, fussing, and whatever words you can think of that are synonyms to that. Uh, so 
you can think about uh, maybe the last significant trial you went through and how you responded to it. James says, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials because this is the result of those trials. But if we respond in a wrong way, uh, with bitterness, anger, ups, being upset, self-pity is a major issue, then instead of growing in character, we'll actually go backwards in character. So it's our choice. We choose. And so the writer to the Hebrews is trying to get people to understand what suffering is about. Number nine, Hebrews was written to people who are suffering, and their suffering was producing the wrong results. So the writer teaches them how to suffer successfully. So you could, it'd be a kind of a fun question to ask people, how do you suffer successfully? And the answer would be, you respond to it in such a way that you grow in character. You become a stronger person. You become more like Christ in every area and every way. And the thing about it, God knows our heart. He knows our character. And he knows exactly what to produce and to bring into our life. Uh, he's an uh, Old Testament illustration. He's like a potter with clay shaping and molding it. And so he knows what to do in order to develop our character if we respond correctly. Hebrews 10.32, Remember the former days when after being enlightened you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. You showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come, and will not delay, my, but my righteous one shall live by faith. If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not, of the, not those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. And so the writer of the Hebrews says, this is our choice. Uh, we can shrink back or we can grow. Number 10, the first step in being a successful sufferer is expect it, plan on it, don't be surprised by it as if some strange, unexpected thing is happening to you. So what you anticipate and expect, uh, you tend to do better with. If you kind of think, okay, I, I'm pretty sure that the rest of my life is going to be nice and comfortable and no problems and no trials. And so when one comes into your life, it catches you off guard. And so every day you wake up, and say, okay, I wonder what great trial is awaiting me today. God is going to develop my character, and he knows what I need, and so we should anticipate that that's what's going to happen. First Peter says, uh, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. That's always the proper response that produces the greatest growth is rejoicing so that at, at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled from the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and God rests on you. And so don't be surprised. Don't think some strange thing is happening to you. Don't think that some reason God doesn't love you. Uh, trials are part of life and that's what makes us grow. Number 11, second step to suffering successfully. Thank God when you go through trials for loving you so much that he wants you to become like him in character so that he can enjoy your fellowship for all eternity. So instead of saying, 
oh, why, 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 why is this happening to me? Doesn't God love me? Doesn't he like me? What in the, oh, why come it's happening to me and not to Ted? Uh, and we grumble and complain, compare, fuss, whine. And what we need to do is to say, Lord, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. You want me to be like you so that you can enjoy me forever, for all of eternity. And I want to be like you, so I'm going to rejoice over these trials and not fuss about them. Hebrews 12, 5 there, and you have forgotten. Again, this writer is uh, coaching, teaching, so that they can go through trials successfully. You have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons, sons of God. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, meaning he takes you through trials, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So if you want to get out of trials, probably the best thing to do is not become a believer. As a believer in Jesus, he's going to make us like Jesus in character, and so we're going to go through trials. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of Spirits and live? To be subject to the Father of Spirits, uh, that is that we would cooperate with him and be submissive to him. For they disciplined us for a short time. It seemed best to them. He disciplines us for our good, for our good, so that we may share his holiness so that we may share his holiness, so that we'll be like him in character. All discipline for the moment seems to be joyful, not to be joyful. And I could say, hallelujah. It's a real pain in the neck, uh, trials, but sorrowful. Yet to those who've been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So God plans trials in our life so that we become like him in character. First Peter 1, for the, in this you greatly rejoice even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So at the revelation of Jesus Christ, we receive glory from him on the basis of our character and the basis of the, re of the work that we've done for him in this life. Acts 5.41, so they went on their way from the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer. Rejoicing because they had been considered worthy to suffer. Number 12, be the third step, uh, or the fourth one, premeditate your reaction and self-talk when trials happen to you. So I don't know if you ever anticipated a difficult situation, maybe at work, and you knew that it was, uh, you were going to walk into the boss's office or somebody was going to show up and there was going to be a difficult uh, confrontation. So you begin thinking in your head what you were going to say and how you were going to deal with it. You planned ahead of time. And so premeditating our self-talk, how we talk to ourselves when we go through a trial, is a really good thing to do. Uh, we uh, don't really plan on having trials. We keep hoping that maybe we're done with them. And in, when you get perfect, then you are. When you become fully grown in character, then you are. But in the meantime, trials are going to be a regular part of our life. And so in the morning when we get up, we say, okay, today I could face a major trial. What am I going to do when it happens? How am I going to think? How am I going to talk to myself? 
Uh, am I going to be full of self-pity and uh, anger and irritation, frustration? Or am I going to say, Lord, thank you. Thank you for you making me like Christ in character. Help me to get through this. Grant me your strength. And, uh, and, we'll, and we'll do it well. 13, commit uh, to not grumbling. Make that commitment. That's the one I make every single morning when I get up today. I will not grumble or complain about anything. I'll rejoice always. Grumbling is a really bad habit, and we pick it up as our culture. Uh, it's American pastime. And so we go to work. We hear people grumble all around us. They grumble, so we start grumbling. Philippians 2.14, do all things, all things, without exception, without grumbling or disputing, that you may prove yourself to be blameless and innocent. That is your grown-up character. 14, spend some time reflecting. This is when you go through a trial. About the circumstances of the trial you go through, the lessons learned, and the growth that you experience. Think about what's happened and the growth you've experienced. Just reflect on it. Ecclesiastes 7:14. In the day of prosperity, be happy, but in the day of adversity, consider or reflect, ponder. 15. When trials come, there is the possibility that God is disciplining you for sin in your life. So examine your life carefully, confess all known sin. Take advantage of a trial as an opportunity to motivate yourself to look in the mirror, as it were, at your thoughts, your attitudes, your words, all that you do, and confess all known sin to him. So that's a key part of growing. 16, often the natural thing to do during trials is withdraw from people. Uh, don't do it. God will grant you his strength. So the key thing about trials is understand God grants you strength to be able to bear up under the trial. He gives you his joy in spite of the trial. He gives you, your he gives you his peace so that uh, trials don't create anxiety in you. He gives strength and joy and peace. And with those, we can manage the trials very successfully. Hebrews 10.23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. He who promises faithful, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. So the basic principle is you can suffer successfully with help, grace that you get from others, and you will not be able to suffer successfully on your own by yourself. Your attitude will wear out and uh, you'll start to grumble and complain and feel sorry for yourself. 17, every day faithfully read the word, pray, so that when trials do come, you will be strong. And 18, use tough times to motivate yourself to think about and imagine what heaven is like and what you will experience when you get there. So this was one of the major things that the writer to the Hebrews uh, encourages the believers to do is to set your mind on the things above to think about heaven. And uh, I, I do that quite often, quite regularly. think, oh, wow, when I get there, it's going to be so cool. No more problems, and it isn't that far away. Easier when you get to be 70, but uh, think about heaven and the glory of heaven. Amen.